0: Hello everyone, how are you? I hope you're all doing well. My name is Andy and this is UFOs and other paranormal stuff. In today's episode, Time Slips. It's a nice sunny day here in the wonderful south london today a blistering 32 degrees celsius and that noise you may hear in the background is my fan going as fast as it possibly can poor little fan well ladies and gentlemen what an interesting week in the field of ufology with the news coming out of the usa that the u.s government is illegally withholding information from congress about the existence of material taken from craft not of this world allegedly I will get my head around all of that and do an episode about that too. It is being touted as the biggest UFO news possibly ever, and right around the time of World UFO Day. Yep, that is, I think, only about a week away, World UFO Day. That will be for a future episode, though, as the news and the reactions from that are still coming out right now. Today's episode is about that popular subject of time slips. As you will have guessed by now, I have done an episode of Time Slips before, but it remains number one on the most downloaded episode of UFOs and other paranormal stuff of all time. So why not do another episode about Time Slips, especially as when I have the idea in the first place, a few stories of Time Slips started to make themselves known. Maybe I should do an episode on synchronicity too. As I have said many times on this podcast before, It is funny that when you find out about something, ufological, paranormal, or something that I did not know about, all of a sudden there seems to be endless YouTube videos and internet blogs or podcasts about that very thing. And I think to myself, just how did I not see that before? That is the same for these stories that I shall tell you about today. But what exactly is a time slip? I put that to ChatGPT. And here is its answer. A time slip refers to a paranormal or unexplained phenomenon where an individual or a group of people experience a sudden and temporary displacement in time. It involves a perceptual shift that allows individuals to seemingly travel forward or backwards in time, often without any control over the experience. During a time slip, individuals may find themselves in a different era, Witnessing events, people, or surroundings that belong to a different time period. They may see historical scenes, encounter people dressed in outdated clothing, or experience architectural and environmental changes that are inconsistent with the present time. Time slips are often described as surreal and disorienting, with a sense of stepping into a different reality or overlapping timeline. Witnesses may report a distorted perception of time feeling as if minutes or hours have passed, when in reality only seconds has elapsed. These experiences are typically subjective and not easily explained by conventional scientific understanding. Time slips can occur in various locations, including historical sites, old buildings or areas with high concentration of paranormal activity. They are often associated with paranormal phenomena, such as ghostly apparitions or residual hauntings. ChatGPT goes on to say slips have captured the interest of paranormal enthusiasts, researchers and sceptics alike as they challenge our understanding of time and reality and the nature of existence. They remain mysterious and elusive, leaving room for speculation and exploration into the nature of time and the possibilities that lie beyond our current understanding. What do you think about that? And with that trusty internet-based answer, let's get on with this show. Ladies and gentlemen, here are the time slips. We start with some incidents of time slips, plural, time slips, in Liverpool. Over the years, quite a few people have claimed to have slipped through time while walking around the streets of this musical city in the north of England. Many of the time travelling incidents appear to have happened on Bold Street, and many were able to recount their stories. In 1996, Frank, an off-duty police officer, was out and about in the city with his wife. They split up at Liverpool Central, one of the many train stations in the city, and agreed to meet up a little later on. His wife went to a bookshop, and Frank wanted to buy a CD from the music shop on Ranlil Street. As he walked down Bold Street, he became aware that everything had gone almost silent. He quickly jumped out of the way of a van that very nearly hit him. The van wasn't there a moment ago, it just appeared in front of him and nearly hit him. He realised that he had never seen the make or model of that van in Liverpool before. Was there an event going on in which this old vehicle was part of? Not that he knew of. The name on the side of the van read Kaplan's. He'd never heard of them. Anyway, he picked himself up, took a breath, and walked across to the bookshop where his wife was. But the shop was not there. In its place stood a shop called Cripps. Looking through the window, he found that this shop sold only women's fashion. Frank wondered what on earth was going on. This was exacerbated when he turned round to find that everyone was wearing old-fashioned clothes. Pillbox hats for the women, smart hats for the men, uh, all that kind of stuff. It was like the fashion of the 1930s and the 1940s. Berets, gloves, the lot. Frank had a thought. His thought? That he had maybe travelled back in time. As he thought about that, he went into the shop, just in case it was some sort of prank or something. No, no. It was all old stuff, but new. As he surveyed that which lay in front of him, he spotted a young girl wearing 1990s-style clothing and carrying a Selfridges plastic bag. Plastic bags were invented in the 1950s, but not widely used in England until the 1970s or the 1980s. The girl was unnerved, as she could not understand what was going on She had just been out shopping with friends and ended up in the past. Then all of a sudden Cripps changed back to a bookshop. Nearly everything had disappeared and was replaced in an instant with books and magazines. The only thing that did not change was the girl. She was still standing there, confused. Frank spoke to the girl and asked her if she had seen the same things that he did. She said yes. She said that she saw a new clothes shop and went inside to have a look and maybe buy some clothes. She didn't notice anything strange until she turned around to close the door behind her and saw the old vehicles and the old fashions being worn by people outside and inside the shop. She remarked how weird she felt and how extra confused she was when the clothes shop suddenly turned back into a bookshop. Did Frank and the girl go back in time? If you walk along Bold Street to where the Waterstones bookshop is, that is where this incident apparently happened. And that Waterstones is in place of the 1996 bookshop that Frank seemingly went back to the future. He returned to work a few days later and decided to do a little bit of research. He asked some older colleagues about Bold Street and it turns out that way back there was a shop called Cripps located where the bookshop was and a company called Kaplan's had been in operation in Liverpool back in those days as well. Then there is the story of Sean, a 19-year-old lad who had been shoplifting in the area when a security guard quickly noticed and ran after him. Sean ran down an alley but found that it was a dead end. He turned around expecting the guard to grab him, but there was no guard to be seen. Sean noticed that something odd was happening. He walked to the street and was baffled by what he saw. The road had completely changed. People were dressed weirdly. The cars and the buses looked very different. The roadworks that had been there moments ago were gone completely. Sean tried his mobile phone, but of course there was no signal. He was thoroughly bewildered and tried to find out what was going on. He found a kiosk and took a look at the newspaper, just like they do in the movies, and to his horror, he read that the date was 18th of May, 196719 year old Sean had gone from 2006 to 1967, in the blink of an eye. He ran full of panic. The streets started to become normal again, yet when he looked back into Bold Street, it looked like it did in the 1960s, with the old cars and fashions. He got on a bus and went home. Some have said that Sean's testimony cannot be reliable, the security guard who chased him mentioned to a journalist that the pair ran into a dead-end alleyway, and he witnessed Sean vanish into thin air. The details that the young man gave about Bold Street in 1967 were exact to how the street actually looked back then. Sean has told this story many times to many people, but the story has never changed. Next up in our intriguing episode is The Lost Hours of A Man Called Paul The Lost Hours of Paul One night back in 1971, Paul was driving through the village of Little Horton in the Midlands. The village church clock was showing 2 o'clock. Now Paul had been out with friends but had not partaken in any drinking of any alcoholic drinks simply because of his long drive home. But after passing the church, he seemed to lose all sense of time. That is, until he found himself wandering around near a hill nearly 20 miles closer to Bedford. Even though there had been no rain, he was soaking wet. His car was nowhere to be seen. He had no injuries. It was now 7 o'clock in the morning. A friend later helped Paul locate the car. It was in a field near to a place called Turvey nearly seven miles away from his current location. The gate to the field was locked, and the farmer displayed surprise when the friend wanted the gate to be opened to get the car out. Also, even though the field was muddy, there was no tyre tracks. It was as if the car had just appeared in the field. Paul explained to his friend that he had absolutely no recollection of the missing five hours, He assumed that he had been in a car accident and had hit his head, but there was no sign of injury and when they found the car there was no sign of damage on it. Paul later discovered that it had rained that night and that it had rained hard during the five hours that he cannot remember. The car had to be towed out of the field by the farmer as it was far too muddy to drive out itself. The vehicle displayed no issues at all, no damage atoll. Some years later, Paul recalled a little more during a flashback. He said that as he passed the village church at Little Horton, he noticed a fuzzy white object heading towards his car, then blackness. Then he was in a field. Was a UFO responsible for Paul's change of time? Oddly, in 1983, the same thing happened again to another Paul, Although the name Peter is used in some sources. We'll stick with Peter this time to avoid confusion. He drove to Little Horton to visit a relative. Leaving Northampton at six forty five PM on his motorcycle, he travelled along the AE four to eight, rounded the bend near Great Horton, and his engine cut out, as did his lights. Peter tried to fix what he thought was a blown fuse, but to no avail. It was then that he saw the glowing white thing on the ground in a field next to where he was attempting the repairs. Everything was silent, no noise at all. He was experiencing the Oz Factor. The Oz Factor refers to a distinct feeling of altered state of consciousness that witnesses report when encountering unusual or anomalous events. It is characterised by a sense of unreality, detachment or a shift in perception that can occur during a paranormal experience. People often describe feeling a sudden silence or stillness, as if the normal sounds and activities of the surrounding environment are muted or distant. Then all of a sudden it was gone. Peter was no longer holding the fuse. He had the ignition key in his hand. The key had only a moment ago been in the bike's lock. The engine and all the electrics were working perfectly fine. He drove on the short little distance to Little Houghton, where upon passing the church he saw that the time was 8.30pm. He had lost one hour and 30 minutes. It seems that time had simply disappeared. Again, was a UFO responsible for this incident too? Is the area near Little Houghton a UFO hotspot? Had he slipped forwards in time and stayed there? Possibly more typical UFO and possible alien abduction cases than time slips, or are they? Does something happen to travellers driving near to the village? Do they go through some sort of naturally occurring time portal that they cannot see and that no one knows anything about? According to listverse.com, there has been many reports of missing time by people in or around the Little Horton area, before and since 1973. Now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, we have to visit the county that seems to have more than its fair share of paranormal events, the county which is home to the mystery of the Green Children of Woolpit, Beowulf, Witchcraft and the Rendlesham Forest incident, Sutton Hoo, and the best fish and chips that money can buy in Aldeburgh in Suffolk. That's it, ladies and gentlemen, Yep, this county has it all, and this is our first of two visits on this episode to Suffolk. Ruffham is a small village which lies only four miles from the second home of the Green Children. It has been the location of some weird occurrences for over 150 years now. Many people have reported seeing houses in places where houses do not exist. One report back in 1926 made it to the radio, and in doing so, the Wynne-Allington report became one of the first ever broadcasts of a time-slip phenomena. In 1926, Reverend Arthur Wynne and his family took up residence at the Ruffram Rectory. His daughter, Ruth, was a private teacher, and her only pupil was a girl called Evelyn Allington. Ruth and Evelyn would take walks to familiarise themselves with the area as they both originated from elsewhere. One afternoon, whilst out, they walked to the church at Bradfield St George. They made their way, walking through a farmyard, then onto a road. The road hugged a high wall made of greenish-yellow bricks. The girls continued along the wall as it rounded the bend, then came across some tall iron gates. Even though the wall was high, they did notice trees behind it and they could just about see the corner of the roof to a large house and the rest of the house being hidden by the wall. They stood at the gates wondering to themselves who might be living in this large three-storey Georgian house. They continued the walk but went home shortly after as it was starting to get cold and rainy outside. Ruth mentioned this large house to her parents and then thought no more of it. The following spring, the two decided to get out into the nice weather and to go for that same walk to the church in the other village. They followed their tracks through the fields and the farmyard out onto that same road. But there was no wall, just a ditch where the wall had been. There was no trees beyond the ditch, as there had been in the same place only seven months before. There was just weeds there now. No gates either. But maybe more weird, there was no house. They decided to have a look to see if maybe the house had been pulled down since their last walk had taken them past it. Nothing, no wall, no house, no remains, no trees, no sign or of a footprint of foundations of a house or a wall. They did find some ponds which, upon closer inspection, appeared to them both to have been there for a long time. There was no evidence to suggest that House had ever been on that spot. Wynne and Allington later sent their story to Sir Ernest Bennett, a Labour MP who presented a radio programme on the supernatural topics on the BBC. Bennett was also a member of the Council of the Society for Psychical Research and spent some time investigating paranormal activity. This report was also included in his book Apparitions and Haunted Houses by E. Bennett along with many other cases of paranormal activity up to publishing date 1939. This book is also available now on Kindle through Amazon and some other bookshops, just never Google. June 1912 James Cobbold was helping George Waylet, the butcher, with his deliveries around Ruffham. As he drove his pony and trap along the Kingshaw Street, the air went cold. A loud whoosh could be heard, and the pony reared up and threw Waylet off the cart. For a few seconds, Waylet and Cobbled could see, right there in front of them, their shocked and surprised eyes, a three-storey Georgian house, with a large garden and flowerbeds before it disappeared into the mist. Wayluck got to his feet and yelled, "'That bloody house! That's the third time I've seen that happen!' So it would seem that this has happened before. And indeed it has. Mr Robert Palfrey reported feeling a chill in the air, then suddenly from nowhere a large red brick house appeared, its gardens filled with summer bloom. This was back in 1860, Interestingly enough, his great-grandson was James Cobbled. Palfrey also reported that the temperature had dropped. Edward Bentley was delivering clothes catalogues to Orbin Davis in Bury St Edmunds. When driving down Southall Street, he saw a large Georgian-style house set back a little from the road. He thought he could get some potential sales from those inside and so asked the driver to pull over. He got out, looked back and saw that the house that both of them had seen only moments ago had vanished. There have been sightings since then in 1976 by Sandra Hardwick, who not only noticed the house but noticed that it was bright, as if it and it alone was in sunlight, even though it was late evening. 1998, another rector's daughter claimed to have seen the ghostly mansion. The last report that I have been able to find is that of Jean Batram, who spoke to the local newspaper East Anglian Daily Times about the time that she and her husband saw a beautiful Georgian house on Kingshaw Street and that both of them were eagerly looking forward to seeing it again on their return journey. But it wasn't there. A few years after that drive, so she told the reporter, she borrowed a book, Ghosts of Suffolk, written by Betty Puttick, and it was the stories in that book that reminded her of the house. Jean said in the article, I have talked to other people and they have heard of it, and the people in Ruffham have heard of the tale. I would just love to get to the bottom of it. It is worth noting also that, as well as having the amazing ability to reappear and disappear, the house seems to have the ability to move too. It is seen in different locations – almost every time it reappears. Carl Groves, a paranormal investigator, theorises that the area has some sort of unusual energy which causes the house to appear. He references cases of whirling vortexes when people use metal detectors or dowsing rods in the area and says he believes the altered energy can enable people to see visions of the past. Whatever is causing it, It is just another example of the strange things that happen in Suffolk. Why is Suffolk so strangely charged? From the Green Children to the Rendlesham UFO to disappearing houses etc etc Suffolk does seem to have more than its fair share of strange things going on there. And that is why I'm going on holiday there again this year. I want to see what I can see. Have you been to, or have you uh, lived in Suffolk? Do you live in Suffolk? Have you seen anything strange going on there? If you have, you know how to get in touch to let me know. I would be extremely interested. Maybe whilst on holiday there, I could visit Woolpit and see the famous green children's sign. Maybe I could pop into Ruffham and see if I might see a strange house. I am going to walk to a place called Kersey, near Hadley, in the south of the county, and if I do notice anything strange like three men did back in 1950s, I'll be sure to let you know. Three Royal Navy cadets were on a routine training event in southern Suffolk, and it all started to go weird as they approached the village of Kersey. Sunday, in autumn 1957, William Lang, Michael Crowley and Ray Baker were making their way across one of the fields near to the village of Kersey. The men were told that they had to stick to a pre-planned route which was a good few kilometres of country walking. Along the route, they would conduct military observations and plot waypoints, etc. They would need to make sure that these were detailed as possible as when the men returned to their base, their superior officers would go over the findings to ensure they had completed their assignment correctly. The assigned location was Kersey. They found the village surrounded by trees. It was the church tower and the bells that gave it away, the tower just tall enough to be seen over the trees, and of course the bells were to be heard from miles around. As they got closer to the surroundings of the village, they started to notice something odd. The church bells could no longer be heard. It wasn't that they had gotten quieter, they couldn't hear them at all. The bells had suddenly stopped altogether, just like if you were playing a CD and, you know, someone just presses pause on the CD, all the sound just stops. The sound of the church bells had done the same. What's more was that as they moved out of the trees, they could see no churchgoers heading to the village's religious building. When the men got out of the trees and turned to see if they could work out why the bells were not ringing anymore, they suddenly realised that it was not only the sound of the bells that had gone, the church had vanished. That's right, the sound of the bells and the church itself had disappeared. The church is up on a hill and is the highest point in the village. Churches were built on hills in those days, in villages and towns in England, both so that a people could see them easily and b being up on a hill meant that it was that much closer to God. Yet this church was gone. They could clearly see it a few moments ago, and it was gone. The cadets were a little confused, but still continued about their work and walked into the village. But what they began to see added to their sense of unease. This was 1957, and Kersey was a small village in Suffolk. Even so, the cadets, who were not from around the area, thought it very strange that the roads were narrow, unpaved dirt tracks. One of the cadets wondered, if this was actually an army training village and not a public village at all, as there were no vehicles of any type in sight. buildings appeared to be out of time as well. They were small, shabby, timber-framed buildings, thatched roofs. You would expect to see old buildings in English villages just like this, but these ones just did not look right. You can take a trip down the main street in Kersey thanks to Google Maps. You will see some of the old medieval houses still standing there, but they have been kept in good condition for centuries now. What was going on with these houses that the cadets Lane, Crowley and Baker were seeing? Were these houses out of time like the house in Ruffham, or had the three cadets slipped back in time? Another of the cadets wondered if they had set foot on a film set. Had they gone off course? No, they were not on a film set, and they were in Kersey. They double-checked their maps to make sure. Yet it was silent, and I mean it was eerily silent. There was not even the sound of an animal or a bird, let alone a person. The three were discussing how weird or creepy unnatural the place felt when one of the cadets brought the other's attention to some ducks that were in the river, now a ford in the middle of the main street. You want to see something unnatural, he said, have a look at these ducks. The ducks were not moving. They did not even appear to be floating free, just sitting there still in the water. It was then that the three suddenly realised something else very creepy indeed. There was no one there. The village was totally empty. No one at all was there. The entire village of Kersey was empty of all human life. Apart from some more ducks standing weirdly still and silent, there was no other life in the village other than themselves. The cadets took a few sips of water from the river in the stream and wrote their observations down. Lane again said how unnatural all of this was. Everything was unnaturally still. It was autumn, yet there was no wind. The trees were not moving. Nothing was moving and everything was silent. It was whilst he was talking about the trees not moving that he suddenly realised that they were green. The trees were green. Again, it's meant to be autumn. Trees by nature shedding their leaves at this time and they are all colours but not green, especially not the full lush green that they were now. The trees now all looked like they were in the middle of spring going into summer. They were green, green, you know, proper green trees. The leaves on the trees outside the village were definitely red and yellow. Another quick check on the observations told them that. William Lane, the Scottish leader of the group, said this. It was like a ghost village, so to speak. It's almost as if we had walked back in time. I had an overwhelming feeling of sadness and depression in Kersey. The village also felt unfriendly. It felt as if someone or something was watching us. Just thinking about it now, sends shivers down one's back. I wondered if we knocked at a door. Who might have answered? It doesn't bear thinking about. Looking around them, they found what they thought to have been the only commercial building in the village. Right next to the river was a butcher shop with a green door. This building still stands, but according to Google Maps, it is pink with a black door and a sign that says Bridge House. Of course, it made sense to have the butcher shop next to the river so that the waste fluids could drain out into the running water and be taken away by the running water away from the village. The cadets looked into its windows. It was dirty and had bodies hanging on the wall. These bodies were ox carcasses. They had been skinned and left hanging on the wall, yet they had been abandoned, seemingly. They were green and they were rotting. It seemed like the butcher had left in a hurry, possibly months beforehand. Lang, Crowley, and Baker peered into the windows of other houses and noted that they too were in a similar state empty. No furniture no curtains no nothing but piles of dust all over the floor all three agreed that the rooms they were looking into were not what you would expect to see in 1950s houses they thought it odd that if this village had been abandoned for months that it was completely untouched no vandalism no one else breaking into other houses and stealing things etc And again, this was meant to be 1957, there was absolutely no modern technology, no wires, no street lamps, no telegraph poles, no TV antennae, no radio towers. The three all agreed now that it was time to leave. They have had enough of this unfriendly feeling of this village and they wanted to get out ASAP. They quickly walked down the lane and over a small hill just outside the village, They stopped dead in their tracks on top of that hill. Bells! They could hear bells again. They turned around to look in the very direction of those church bells, which, coincidentally, was the same direction that they had just come from. And there, in all its greatness, was the village's church, with the sound emanating from its bells. As if someone had just unpaused that CD, the sound of bells filled their ears once more. But it wasn't just the bells. The sound of birds chirping away, the wind rustling in the yellow and red leaves of the trees that were green a minute ago. They were as surprised to see the church tower as they were when they could not see it earlier on in the day they felt a little more relieved when they also saw smoke coming up from the houses of Kersey. In 1988, William Lang, who had emigrated to Australia, was reminded of his experience 30 years earlier in Kersey and decided to phone his old colleague, Michael Crowley, who incidentally had also moved to Australia in the 1980s, to talk about the event. Crowley couldn't recall as much as Lang could, but did remember that Kersey felt odd and out of time. Lang, it turns out, had been bothered by the event ever since it had happened, and did not know how to get to the bottom of it. He still wanted some answers. He contacted journalist, novelist, and parapsychologist Andrew Mackenzie, who also became part of the governing council for the Society of Psychical Research. Unbeknownst to Lang, Mackenzie also had an interest in time slips. He was very intrigued by the Versailles case of Moberly and Jourdain, which is included in the first episode of Time Slips on this podcast. Lange had read Mackenzie's book, Hauntings and Apparitions, in which the author had asked readers to send in their strange stories of the unexplained. A <laughs> bit like me. Lange followed through by contacting Mackenzie and telling him about the Kersey incident that he and his two friends had all experienced. Mackenzie concluded that the three cadets had in fact experienced the time slip event and that they had seen Kersey not as it was in 1957, but as it was hundreds of years earlier. Both Lange and Mackenzie exchanged letters for a couple of years and also, as much as each other could, visited libraries to try to investigate the phenomenon more. This was helped by a historian who was in fact from Kersey. It was found that the village dated back to the 10th century, just before the Norman conquest of England had begun. Mackenzie managed to track down Ray Baker, who was still living in London in the 1980s, but Baker could recall little about the event other than the details of the night before, where they were sleeping in the barn, as well as the walk into Kersey itself. He did remember some small details of the village, like the weird windows on the buildings and the no furniture in them. In 1990, William Lang and Andrew McKenzie went back to Kersey, retracing the steps that the cadets had taken into the village that strange day back in 1957. Lang noted the old butcher's shop, commenting that it had changed since 30 years ago. He said that he wanted to knock at the door and ask about the building's history. Mackenzie, as stated before, concluded that the experience was genuine and the men had slipped back in time. The detailed recollections, the sincerity of Crowley and Lange with some persuasive discoveries helped Mackenzie come to his conclusion. During their visit to Kersey in 1990, Lange spotted the building that they had discovered was the old abandoned butcher's shop back in their time slip. Bridge House had been a private residence in 1957. Now, it is a holiday home that anyone can book to stay in, so if you fancy a holiday in a nice sleepy village that has a knack for time travel, that's your place to go. And also if you don't mind staying in an old butcher's shop. Lang and Mackenzie did knock on that door and spoke to the people who lived there at the time in 1990. They discovered that this building was indeed a butcher's shop in the past, but the last time it was recorded as such was back in the 1890s. With the help of two other families, who had relatives that had lived in Bridge House, Lang discovered that it had been linked to the butchery business between 1790 to 1905, and then converted into a general store until the 1970s. One of the families that helped Lang told him that due to the lack of records, if there even were any around at the time, the building may have been a butcher's shop way before the 1700s. The building also had attached to it an outbuilding, built in the style of a 16th century slaughterhouse. Lang found out a little later that the main building could very well date back to 1350. As I said before, the fact that this is right next to a river would have been ideal for getting all of the fluids out of that building, out of the village very quickly. Mackenzie agreed the date 1350 to be possibly the time that the cadets slipped back to. This was corroborated by the church that was missing when they entered the village that fateful day. It was built in the 14th century and because of its position up on the hill it is a landmark visible to anyone on the main street and anyone in surrounding villages too could see it. Yet the cadets could not see it 30 years ago. Mackenzie was able to use this to try to more accurately pinpoint a more accurate date that Lane, Crowley and Baker visited Kersey. In 1348, the construction of the church was stopped due to the ravages of the plague pandemic that we now know as the Black Death. It is thought that it killed 50 people in Kersey, which at that time had a tiny population of around about 100, give or take. Mackenzie concluded that the cadets went back in time to when the plague pandemic was in full swing and Kersey was an abandoned village that would have been evident by the lack of people, of course, but also by the fact that the butcher's shop was just abandoned while carcasses were still on the wall. People would have likely fled to the surrounding woodland to try and escape the disease by practising this medieval version of social distancing, I suppose. And of course, the half-built church would have been hidden by the trees. Give another few weeks or months when there was no leaves on the trees, you could have possibly seen it. Now, it is of course fine to be sceptical about all of these time-slip events, from this and the previous episode of course. But no one seems to be able to come up with anything that could be considered a valid explanation for them. And in the Cursey incident, no one can explain how these lads, who were only 15 at the time and knew nothing of Cursey before walking into it in 1957, had the ability to describe the village as it was in 1348. It is a nice looking village which still has some buildings that date back to the medieval times, standing for everyone to look at and enjoy. Some people have said that given the village's medieval-looking buildings, that especially Crowley and Lang were wrong in their observations, given that they were looking at Kersey from their own contemporary perception. But that does not explain the still ducks, the missing church, the missing people, the lack of technology, and the carcasses left abandoned on the wall of the butcher's shop. Lang was shown some old photographs of Kersey taken... During the 1890s. He said that he did not recognise it from the village that he visited in 1957 or 1348, whatever. He said that whilst some buildings were familiar, there were too many more buildings in the photos, and where those newer buildings are in the photographs was where the woods had encroached into the village. There were trees there. The church, as we know it, was not there. But the stream, or river, and the house that was in these photos, still a butcher's shop, was right where he had remembered them to be. So, what do you think, dear listener? Are these time slips real? Did these men really pop back into the time of the plague? Did that house in Ruffham have a unique ability to travel in time and space? And what about the multiple incidents that have occurred in Bold Street in Liverpool? All these and other time-slip incidents that were covered in the first episode on the subject that involve both myself and other people that I know, can they be explained away? I'm not so sure that they can, but of course, I would say that, wouldn't I? I was in one of them. Do get in touch, as I would really like to know what your thoughts on this perplexing phenomena known as time-slips are. Have you had one? Do you know someone else who's had one? Have you experience have you read stories about them other than these anything please let me know write in and let me know go to ufos and and just fill in the contact form at the bottom do let me know please thanks again ladies and gentlemen and until next time enjoy the sun enjoy a bit of the rain as well but enjoy yourself and look after yourself take care bye-bye